At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome back to the Drug Science Podcast. This is not the voice that I imagine a lot of you were expecting to hear. My name is James Bunn and I produce the Drug Science Podcast with Professor David Nutz and do the audio technological wizardry in the background. Uh, This is just to let everyone know that this is a slightly different episode to how we've usually done it in the past. Uh, Part one of this episode, we are interviewing Evgeny about his uh, upcoming uh, ayahuasca experience in Peru. Now, the audio for that recording has become a little bit corrupted just due to the fact it was recorded with rather patchy internet in South America. So uh, please bear with us in that sense, because part two, we speak to Evgeny again to hear his reflections on his ayahuasca experience. So without further ado, I'll pass you over to Dave, um, but if you want to fast forward to his reflections, you can do so about the 18-19 minute mark or so. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, hello everyone. This is the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Today we have a, a rather unusual podcast, and the guest on the podcast today is someone that many of you will have heard of, although they've probably not heard speak much before. Uh, Evgeny Lebedev, who is, uh, of course, very well known as the owner of the Independent and the Evening Standard newspaper, and who is about to undergo uh, an ayahuasca ceremony in Costa Rica. Um, He approached me a couple of weeks ago asking if I could help uh, him find a suitable place, and I hope I have, because he's there now, and uh, he's just told me he's had a three-hour introduction, which suggests to me that they've uh, done a pretty thorough job, and uh, I... I'm delighted that you are prepared and interested in talking about uh, why you're doing it and eventually, after you've done it, what effect you might have had on you. So, Evgeny, the floor is yours. David, hello. Thank you for for talking to me and um, you good voice for for this. Could listen to you for hours. I'm sure the listeners are glued to listening to you. But and, and you very kindly came. On a, uh, on a on a podcast episode that I've done on psychedelics, which I'm yet to release, but it's part of a series on it's called um, Brave New World, and it's part of a series on, on, uh, on advances in, in medicine and healthcare and things like longevity and genetics and, and mm-hmm. psychedelics and and their huge benefits of late discovered in in, in treatment of mental health issues. Is one of them, and so but my journey here has been partially through talking to you and Professor Robin Cuthbert Harris, who I think is a pupil of yours, but is now yes, gone, gone across the pond, and Amanda Fielding, who's who's been a great pioneer in this field, and now yes. her, what her theories and her observations of all coming to reality. 
So that that's been one aspect in my decision to to come here and do this. I've been interested in healing healers, and so this is more the more scientific aspect, which often call it. And only in the last three four years, I've really understood quite thoroughly how these substances, be it ayahuasca or psilocybin or LSD, have, could, could have profound effects in, in treating mental health issues. Uh, but separately from that, I've, I've been interested in plant medicine, and I've actually done ayahuasca once before, about 13 years ago, in a very oh. different way. I was just traveling through Peru with a couple of friends, and we ended up being in, in Machu Picchu, and um, I think one of them was just read about it because it was quite a new thing in the West. The time said, should we just do it? And um, after <laughs> a little bit of uh, of uh, wavering, we both said, we all said, let's just do it. So we found some healers in Machu Picchu who drove us up top of a mountain in a wide, beat-up Land Rover, so I, I wasn't even sure if we'd come back alive, but, <laughs> but, 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 but we did, and um, and it was an interesting experience, if not that profound, because it wasn't as prepared and as thought no. through as as this one is, and, and so, so here I am, uh, having traveled just towards this one or more spiritual one and one or more scientific one but of course they they, they totally intertwine because the, the two things are connected in one way or another whatever you might believe in or whatever your system of belief is whether it's purely scientific or beyond and i felt that now was the right time for me to to do this i'm sure you're right i'm sure when the time is right if you think it's the right time it is the right time it's very brave of you. I mean, do you feel brave to, to, to be public about this, or do you think it's now sufficiently mainstream that you you won't suffer any kind of negative publicity as a result? Well, we live in Britain, and, and uh, so that's number one. So I'm sure I'll suffer negative publicity. Number two, to me. So I'm sure. I'm, I have no doubt. I was, I was just curious to hear from you on on how how what you how you feel about me speaking about this publicly, and also. Just generally about um, ayahuasca, because I believe we didn't speak about it that much on, uh, when, when, we, yeah. when we spoke. We mostly spoke about psilocybin. Yes. Well, obviously, you know, as someone who's been campaigning for a long time to have a, a scientific perspective and scientifically driven drug policies, I'm, I'm delighted that someone with your ability to influence public opinion and also just share evidence in your through your media outlets is, is actually prepared to do this i think this is a, you know potentially a groundbreaking event and experience and and obviously i uh, i very much hope that afterwards you you get insights which will convince you and others that uh, it was worthwhile and uh, and uh, supports what we and many others are trying to do through our research but i was also particularly it I did a little bit of background reading of you, and I, did, I discovered that your grandfather was actually a very eminent uh, biologist, um, a sort of an evolutionary biologist and, uh, back in Russia. You know, and uh, so I, I'm sort of intrigued as to whether you feel you're maybe in his footsteps as well as uh, doing something for yourself. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, I've I was very lucky to have had a grandfather like this who. Uh, he basically wished that I was his son <laughs> and um, was was very much putting everything into me 
uh, going into his footsteps, which sadly now, in, in hindsight, although it's never too late, I realize sadly I didn't, but it, it has implanted so much in the curiosity about science, the curiosity about the natural world, the curiosity about discovery and um, scientific discovery in particular. So, no, absolutely. And the, the first time I actually traveled to South America was with him when I was oh. I think, 13 years old. We went to Bolivia and Peru. So there's no, no, no doubt that it's there. So um, Part of his legacy is in here. Yes. But of course, the other thing that I want um, the listeners to know a little bit more about you is, the, is your interest in art. And one of the things that permeates the whole of the psychedelic, the history of psychedelia, really, is this fabulous relationship with art, uh, going back to, uh, you know, certainly to the ancient Greeks, or before the ancient Greeks, to, to the mushroom men, the great carvings in, uh, in, the, in the walls of, uh, uh, of cave buildings in, in Algeria, and also the statues in, in South America. And uh, you're an art collector, and a man who knows a lot about art, too. I think if we could pull together some of the the insights from art and some of the insights from science, we could we could actually get you know maybe make things more amenable and more understandable to those people who are in either you know the separate camps. So uh, I'm looking forward well, to I'm, doing that. Well, of course, I mean, I, the uh, that's the most famous book of all in um, in the, the whole psychedelic uh, uh, the literature is, of course, the doors of perception. Yes. And wh where does that term come from? That comes from one of Britain's greatest, greatest artists, William Blake. And, you know, and Blake was uh, both a visionary artist, but also a visionary sort of philosopher of mind. And, and, and I think, although I'm, he, I don't think Blake took psychedelics, but he certainly had images that were very compatible with the psychedelic experience and, and, and had the insights. And I think many, many great artists they kind of don't need psychedelics because their mind works as minds work under psychedelics without them. They're sort of gifted with that, uh, those abilities to see things differently, to see the bigger picture. Um, it may be that art is a way of communicating the, uh, that experience to, to two groups of people who uh, couldn't get it themselves or couldn't understand it themselves. And, that, and I was just wanting to reflect on that with you a bit. Blake is a great example, of course, because he was the ultimate traveler without leaving his home <laughs> and his imagination. And it's yes. interesting to, to, to that he, he he never took psychedelics that we, that we know. But yeah, I mean, I, I, as I've already mentioned, I have always been very curious about the connection between science and art. So I'll see what, <laughs> what I'll, I shall keep that in mind and see what what comes out on the other side. And have you, have you had, have you yourself had experience with ayahuasca? No, I haven't. And, and we, but we do, we are using DMT quite a lot. Right? Yes, of course. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we are very difficult for us to use ayahuasca in, in the UK because as scientists, we have to be absolutely sure that what we're giving is mm -hmm. compliant and it's very, well, it's, I think, impossible to. In this country, in the UK, as you pointed out, is, Got one or two strange um, traits, and one of them is that we are very unsympathetic to plant medicine. In fact, we don't have any plant medicines currently available in Britain, with the possible exception of medical cannabis, which is rarely used. So we've uh, we've been part of the uh, a bit like Germany. We've been part of the the idea that you've got to extract from the plant a single pure substance, because that's what is the only thing you can be certain about. But in doing so, we may well miss a trick or two. 
an ideal world, what would you, you know, something that could be realistic or how, what kind of change would you, would, you, would you want to see in the UK? Well, what we're very keen on seeing is a, a, a alterations in the schedules to make, to make it easy for us to do research with these compounds. I mean, uh, to, for the last 50 years, the Home Office, the British governments have consistently told us that these drugs are very dangerous, which they're not, are addictive, which they're not, you can use, mm-hmm. use addiction, and have no medical value, which was actually an outrageous lie because they were medicines before they were banned uh, as a result of the Nixon's war on drugs. So we need to just, we need to completely change the position of, of these drugs in relation to medicines. And, you know, if that's something that, that you, through your um, your newspapers, could could help us do, then, you know, the millions of people would be grateful. Right. And millions would that would be a miracle. Mm. Yes, well, that's you know that that is my aim because my my the whole aim of my podcast was to actually educate people about what is out there in any kind of um, in any aspects of of their body or mind. Well, we've been part of the first study of DMT in treatment of depression. It was uh, run by a, a company called Small Pharma Inc., which is a, one of these startup companies. It's been got very excited by our, our, our work on treatment-resistant depression. So they did a very nice study, and quite a few members of our team were part of that. And it showed, yes, it, it, it's a, an infusion of DMT, which is equivalent to taking ayahuasca, produced quite profound reductions in depressive symptoms, which were long-lasting. So yeah, I think DMT seems to be probably similarly effective as psilocybin in depression. And the big challenge now for that company is to raise enough money to, to take it through to the uh, later stages of registration. But as, as you may know, the, the psychedelic marketplace is becoming very threatened. There's, you know, there's been a bit of a bust. There was a boom a couple of years ago, but we're going down into a bit of a bust at present. And uh, uh, I'm a bit worried that many of the companies that were set up will, will struggle to make it through. Why is that? Because of too many to saturation? No, I don't entirely know. I think partly it was uh, perhaps overhyped. It was a lot of money came in from the, from the cannabis bubble. I think a, a, a failure to realize that it's, these are different kinds of medicines to traditional medicines. I think also the regulators are saying, well, they are so different. We don't know how to regulate them. You know, it's, you know you're only maybe taking one, one dose, but you're also having quite a lot of therapy around it. So there's, an, there's more uncertainty. It's different. This is a unique kind of medicine where people mm. can be cured or maybe even cured if, you know, in a very short space of time. And so the, the business, current business model for pharma is give something every day for a very long time. And this is exactly the opposite of that. Well, look, David, I'm grateful again. I mean, I've been, uh, the reason why I'm here really at this time is because we're not going to have a psychotherapy session, but, you know, it's been, it's for one reason or another, it's been a tough sort of 18 months, right. years, and I've realized that I've become, you know, I've not become a good partner a good friend a good son a good nothing it's just kind of never-ending loop of activity that obviously is there to mask something else something mm-hmm. deeper and the last two years have particularly brought us to the surface and i just felt that i've had to um uh, you know i had to break this 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 kind of hamster wheel or or, um, yeah, yeah. or, or, or ferris wheel if you will 
which I can never come off of. I just have to keep constantly turning and turning and turning. So, so, uh, so here I am. And, and uh, once again, thank you for, for talking to me and thank you for helping me find this place. I'm really hoping for you and I'm really looking forward to you sharing your experiences and, and your insights subsequently. And then we can talk a bit more then about the science and what may be going on in your brain to, to affect course, the change yeah. that I hope. Hi there, curious minds and seekers of knowledge. If you're passionate about understanding the science behind drugs or their impact on society, we've got something exciting for you. If you're looking to bridge the gap between cutting edge research and practical applications, you should find out more about our recently launched consultancy arm of drug science. As of 2024, Drug Science has opened up a brand new consultancy service that brings evidence-based solutions to the forefront of drug policy and public health. Whether you are a policymaker, you work in biotech and drug discovery, or you're part of an organisation navigating the complex landscape of drug-related issues, Drug Science Consultancy is here to guide you. Our team of experts combine years of research experience with a commitment to evidence-based decision-making, from scoping the literature to developing clinical trials or providing educational programmes we can tailor our services to meet your unique needs. So don't just stay informed, become a driving force of positive change with Drug Science Consultancy. Visit drugscience.org.uk slash consultancy today or check the show notes for a direct link. Well, tell us a bit more about it. So you had one, two, three ceremonies? It was a grouping of four ceremonies over a week. Uh, so there were two and then a night off and then another two. The advice was to sort of build up slowly to the third one, which was the the, the biggest dose taken, and then the sort of reduction on the fourth day. And it's by no means an easy experience. It's um, you know for those listeners who who thinks it, who think that, and I think there's a lot of misconception about that. You you sure you know more than me about psychedelics, particularly when they're discussed in this kind of realm of treatment of of the mind people think a lot of people think who who are not familiar with the subject think it's 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 a bit of a jolly it's definitely not that it's it's a commitment and it's a hard work and one thing i i have learned for, for for sure is that despite the fact that it's hard work at the time the real hard work starts afterwards when you start integrating what you've learned and and those things that you've intended to find out about because if you don't then it doesn't really work well for me it didn't really work anyway well let's let's come on to that integration in a minute but let's just tell us a, a bit more about the so you had four four ayahuasca sessions in 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 group with a shaman yes so so the way it works is it was a rather large well for me a rather large group i'm not very good at speaking to one person about my feelings let alone a group of of t- 20 also Americans who tend to be very good at speaking about their emotions and their feelings and us Russians are totally the opposite. <laughs> and, and so even that in itself was, was an interesting and worthwhile experience for me to be able to sit around in the group and <laughs> discuss why I was there and then discuss what I experienced and, and, and at the end discuss what I've taken out of it. I suppose that, most of them didn't know who you were then, I guess. Or, or I mean, I guess you're less of a public figure in the U.S. 
Would that be fair? Well, what did you say? You, you suppose most of them would not have known. I mean, no, I, no. I would have thought most English people would know who you were, but I guess in, in America you're probably not so well known. Well, I'm not sure even about English, but but in the but the, they they do try their utmost to keep people's identity confidential. So they only use first names, but towards the end, I suppose there's more familiarity amongst each other, and so. But yes, it, it is quite anonymous in that sense, which is which is a nice thing. Particularly, it was nice. In, in that sense, it was nice. And, and Americans are, you know, they, they were pretty much all Americans. I think that there was, there was one person from uh, Serbia and myself. Otherwise, everyone was American. And Americans are much freer and easier just in, in communicating. So it was, it was just a good experience for me in itself. Yeah, it's a good role models. Yeah, <laughs> in moderation. So uh, to, to but talking about the experiences themselves, he, it was it was it was in the in a large space called the Moloko, which is a um, a traditional healer structure made made of wood and thatch, and a ceremony took place in the round. And after dark, there was a yoga session, and then the healers or the shamans and the um, the so called facilitators who are the people who look after any needs of of the patients or, or the guests come in and, and um, there, there's a moments or you know, a half an hour, an hour silence and contemplation. And then in turn, everyone takes the ayahuasca and then everyone goes into their own space. People are encouraged not to communicate between themselves or in, in quite the opposite, they're, they're asked not to. And so the, for the first for the first experience for me was very light, and then in, in the second one I did experience something really interesting, which was um, taking me back to my childhood or or rather baby time surgery that I had on my on my intestines. I had the in, intestinal dissection when I was four months old. I saw a theater and surgical theater with a surgeon in the white mask and very kind of austere Soviet style surgical theater, bright lights and a surgeon in the white mask and a white cap and one of those old school mirrors on the forehead leaning over me. So that was really interesting because I didn't really, you know, I obviously very well aware I have a huge scar on my stomach, but it's not really something I thought much about, but it, that was an interesting place to be taken to and i guess it's has affected me in so many ways because at that time to be even though not necessarily consciously but definitely subconsciously or somewhere deep down consciously being aware of fear and and worry and loss of control and well death i suppose as well i mean presumably it was life threatening they wouldn't it must yes absolutely and not being able to or my mother not being able to have access to me for at least four days at all, and then some weeks afterwards, only in the daytime. So, and you know, I, I have a, a child, and I can see that she's not, when, when she was very little, if she didn't have her mother around, then it would be very, very distressing, even for, you know, for an hour or two, let alone a few days. So that was very interesting and definitely um, unexpected.
Yeah, I guess you hadn't thought about that for many years, I suppose. I mean, had you ever reflected on it before? Not really, not really. The only thing I reflected on is that I have a very big, hard scar, so I thought maybe they forgot to take the stitching out. <laughs> that's the only thing I, that's ever crossed my mind. But um, I've never actually thought about it. I did ask my mother very recently since just to, to find out, and I got this detail from her, and which I just wasn't very familiar with. So I think this is, maybe you, you'd be better placed to talk about this, but I think this is one of the things that psychedelics do is they take you back to root causes of certain feelings, emotions, and and uh, mental conditions that you might experience as a result of what's happened to you very early. Indeed they do. And psychedelics do uncover memories which have long been forgotten. But have they been they've obviously not been forgotten because they're still there. And and one of the interesting questions that we're wrestling with from the perspective of the science, the neuroscience of psychedelics is is what is the nature of that sort of pseudo forgetting? And my suspicion is that your brain and our brains actively repress, they try to stop you accessing things which are challenging, difficult, painful, which you can't process. So what's the point in going back there? But, but that repression is effortful. And one of the theories we're working on in relation to depression is that the mental effort, the exhaustion, the mental exhaustion of depression is often driven by brain having to use so much effort to stop you accessing the root cause. Yes. Yes, I suppose it's it's similar to the to the way humans and humanity tends to be quite forgetful about all the pain and suffering over the of the generations and quite easily. Well yes, I mean it's obviously hugely adaptive. I mean if you can't stop thinking things which are you can't deal with, then that will also disrupt your the functioning. So it's a question again, the balance right, and obviously you know, what one tries to do in psychedelic therapy is to deal with the accesses. When you know, in your case, understanding or getting experience, it was probably very would have been extremely traumatic and may have patterned some of your lifelong mental behaviours, but allow you now to potentially deal with it uh, as a result of understanding the importance of it and, and, and recollecting it. So, But you know, maybe we'll come back to that in terms of the integration. Tell us a little bit more about the, the other two trips, please. So one, on one of the nights I had uh, an interesting journey back to, I guess, ancestral trauma or ancestral epigenetic mark from a fear of just a general downright fear of was very present in the consciousness and minds of Soviet citizens throughout the 30s, 40s, early 50s in, in kind of height of Stalin's, Joseph Stalin's rule. And you know, most members of my ancestry lived in Moscow at the time. So that would have been you know, the main target of the purging and disappearance of of individuals for any number of reasons, from just for, from saying the wrong thing to literally just um, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and somebody a neighbor wanting to move in on your space and in a communal flat, communal apartment, or if it was discovered that you had ancestry that was, you know, God forbid, aristocratic, but 
could be clerical or even to do with Russian imperial bureaucracy, army. So a lot of people lived in fear. And I think I had this, this, this vision of a communal apartment and washing lines going through the corridor and pots on the stove and, and, and that kind of 1930s way, kitchen, kitchen fire burning stoves and, and, and just this presence of strong presence of fear. And yeah. Well, that permeated society, didn't it? I, well, it's, um, bizarrely, I've just recently read Julian Barnes's book about Shostakovich. If you've read it, The Silence of Time, about how he lived so much of his life anticipating disappearing. He, he still he managed to function, but it was a hugely, hugely distressing period. Every night he'd stand outside his apartment expecting to be taken away, and he didn't want his wife and children disturbed by it, and he'd sit waiting for the, the, the police to come. Luckily, they never did. It's a remarkable book if you're not ready. I mean, it would just reconjure up some of those, perhaps too many of those memories that you forgot. But they must, as you say, they must be deeply embedded in the, in the Russian psyche. Yes, yes, for sure. Well, it might, might, be, might be helpful if you, if you can explain to the listeners a little bit more about this, because it's, 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 of course, very much a Gila ancient shamanic tradition of ancestral wounds, ancestral trauma, but it, as far as I understand, and you, you'll know more about this than I do, but the recent research has shown that you can pass on uh, such things through epigenome. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it just seems like periods of extreme stress, and it, most of the work has been done relating to starvation stress or malnutrition, that can change the, the germline so that particular traits are amplified or more prevalent in, in other generations because you, there's, there's been an indelible impact on your genetics through, the, uh, through those traumatic experiences. I mean, they're less easy to study. There's less good data with psychological trauma, but I don't see any reason why that shouldn't happen. Yes, and, um, you know, I just know, for example, that in my father's mother's family, her father was very lucky to escape disappearance and him and his whole family because his sister worked as a secretary to the police chief who was in charge of dishing out orders on arrest and she saw her brother's name and told him that he and his family will be arrested so he packed up his bags and everything they could take and they just left left their house and presumably somebody else was arrested because all the, the way it was done was done on on quotas the the, the it sounds terrifying now it's so hard to actually get your head around but you know, if you've read you've read this book and then you can sort of get into the mindset of what it was like living there but it must have been utterly utterly terrifying where this sort of people were just quotas on the headquarters you had to arrest this many people in order to sort of keep the fear fear very much present in his mind that was the point wasn't it <laughs> to keep the fear so that you didn't, you didn't you were too terrified even to you know to protest or even consider organizing some kind of resistance. Yeah, and certainly, certainly was there. It's interesting. You see, I mean, one of the things I've always been intrigued by and haven't really ever properly got my head around was the, this this idea that psychedelics help you get to access to sort of archetypes. I don't know if you know that the man who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson 
uh, actually escaped from his alcoholism through a, a psychedelic trip. And uh, he then, when LSD became available, he, he's actually, Huxley's first exposure to LSD was, was with Bill Wilson. And Wilson strongly supported research on using LSD to help people overcome alcoholism. But he was also very interested in the psychological experiences, and he wrote some rather sort of famous letters to Carl Jung, saying that Jung should consider psychedelics rather than dream analysis as a way of really accessing these archetypal people, figures, contents of dreams, which underpin you know, a lot of human experience and narratives and, and these sort of historical perspectives. Unfortunately, Jung was very old and was not, was dying at the time. He didn't really take him seriously. But I think what you're describing fits quite well with what Wilson and others you know, would, would see as you know, being allowed to see back through generations. So it's not uncommon for people to get that experience. So what do you mean by uh, how would that translate into what made you think of that in, in, in relation to what I've said? Well, it's the, the, the sort of tra- the his generational, the presence of generational traits uh, is very similar to the to the sort of presence of these Jungian archetypes. You know, so, so there are features in dreams which are often which are very common. You know, features like being chased, features like being uh, things like goblins and elves, unpleasant creatures, scary things. Uh, there are certain features which are common. In, certainly in many nightmares, and Jung would say, see, saw them as some kind of collective archetype, that there were, there, were, there were features of humanity which were embedded in the brain, which came from, genera- you know, you don't talk them, you know, no one's taught to have nightmares, they're just there, and when you have, you know, they, they express themselves in periods of, you know, episodes of anxiety like a nightmare, and you know, why they should be the, so similar is unknown. Actually, I mean, one of the things you know that's coming interesting now, and a little bit touched on in our work to some extent, hard to study are the entities. I mean, again, the experience of entities, um, which some people have with some psychedelics, of the sense of other beings, is kind of not dissimilar to those sorts of uh, uh, dream-related uh, experiences as well. It's an extraordinary thing. I, I you know, having been having first learned about this just just brushing with it in, in Peru 13 years ago, then exploring the field of psychedelics and mental, mental, mental um, the development of this field, a recent, recent resurgence of, of treating, treating mental health and talking to yourself and, and Robin and, and then doing it myself. Is, it's been a really, really interesting and enlightening journey in, in so many ways because it is, you know, for me anyway, it's what you, you do find so, so many things about yourself that I'm just not sure you can through. Well, I'm sure you can't, which is why I've invested the last 20 years of my life in this research, because it, I think it does open up doors and avenues and understandings that you can't get in any other yeah. way, really. So, so did, tell us about the fourth one then. So you had, were there, was there any unity between them or was each one completely different? Well, I, I think probably the unity between them somewhat and unity in my head was all about, you know, this, this, this idea of control and needing to be in control and trying to figure out where it came from and, and, and losing control really. And, you know, I've probably 
quite irresponsibly, I set myself an intention to get to be out of control. And uh, only now in hindsight, I realize what, what's a what's tough, tough task that is to set my mind with aid of psychedelics to lose control. And that I certainly did. And that was, you know, it was, it was a very, very tough, tough experience. It was, um, you know, lots of black voids and lots of falling, lots of trying to grab onto things to, to hold on to things and to be able to be in control, but not being able to be in control. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, if not the hardest. But you survived. Yes, I've survived. And, I've, um, and as I've said before, it was, it, was, it was very, very tough, but I don't regret it for a moment because I have learned a hell of a lot. And I've also learned that it's okay to be not always in control. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, there are many mental disorders which are, exist because of people's desperate attempts to maintain control in situations which are very difficult. And, and in the end, that attempt ends up dominating the lives to a point where the, you know, the lives are actually really quite diminished. So, you know, conditions like depression, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, anorexia, they're, they're about trying to maximize control in the, in the, where many cases you don't need to, but they become habitual and, and destructive in themselves. Well, it's, it is also interesting for me, and I've been just thinking about this recently, and I had a very interesting conversation with Dr. Gabo Mate, who you very kindly put me in touch with. And it's interesting to think about the, you know, the things that we consider as conditions and they get diagnosed to actually look at them in a different way. Cause they, you know, some of them clearly are conditions, but some of them are, are just, are just being conditioned by certain things that have happened earlier on in life, you know, be it ADHD or be it OCD. And these, are, you know, if you, if you can find out what it was somewhere, sometime that, that has led you to behave this way, I think it's, you know, I don't know if you agree with this, but it, it seems to me that it's much easier to accept perhaps living with that. Oh, I'm coming to terms with, yeah, I mean, Yes, I mean, obviously, I've come from exactly the opposite pole of psychiatry, the very biological pole than, than Gabor. But, but you know, the more we, exp and again, it's psychedelics that have done this, the more we understand the, the way psychedelics uncover early trauma, the more we realize that we've got a lot more work to do, but getting to dealing with those memories, dealing with those experiences. In the past, what we have done, you know, in psychiatry is kind of said, well, it's too difficult. So let's just paper over the cracks. Let's give people antidepressants or antipsychotics to try to stop those memories disturbing people so much. Now we're, I think, in a, in a situation where we might be able to get them into a state where we can potentially change, as you say, your attitude to them. So things like mindfulness, you know, maybe come to terms with them and, and actually not have them as a problem, have them as a fact but not have the emotion that's driving, distorting the way you live your life. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I remember when we spoke back in August and we, we talked about the, uh, that great metaphor. And I think then you used the, the Buddha version of it, of, of, of the, uh, of the burrows or, or the, uh, the ski, the ski burrows of your mind. And you just keep going down the same 
way day after day after day and and it is definitely the case that what psychedelics do is they just give you an opportunity for to find new new paths new ways to go having having had new snowfall you can choose which way to go but of course the when you do come back to your everyday life in the end your external and your internal or you know there's the that's sort of the big I think the terminology is base prize, right? They're, they're, and they haven't gone away anywhere. So it's, it's about trying to integrate what you've learned within your external circumstance that you've come back to exactly the same as it was. And also your internal programmed, the so-called base prize that are still there and haven't gone anywhere. Yeah. And of, but of course, the, one of the points I make to people about, about psychedelic experience is it, it might not cure you. But it does show you you can change. <laughs> the experience itself is changing. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that, that's what I mean. It's, it's all there, but you, can, you you just have to you just have to really work hard at at what you've learned, bringing that in, into into your old life. So tell me what you've been doing since you got back. Then how have you been working with those uh, insights and experiences? Well, I've tr- I've tried to be there in Costa Rica for a bit of time and not come back to, which I did. So I, I really intended to do that. And I was very lucky and I was grateful to that. I've been able to do that because it was very, very important not to just come back to your old life and not, not to be surrounded by lots of people and not to go through a busy airport. So that was really important. And then just talking to people you know, like yourself, like Michelle, who you've introduced me to, people who understand how it works and help to to bring the learnings of of the psychedelic experiences and into them into real life you know i i know i'm repeating myself now probably for the third time but it is really important to just continue working at it because it just is not because i do hear people say a lot to me oh i think it's it's all worn off all the effects are worn off and and there's nothing lasting but I, I do believe very strongly because i have done this once before many years ago and I can't say there's it, it's, it's had any long lasting effect at all, but of course I didn't, I did, it, it came and went and that was it. Whereas this time I've uh, made a real effort to, to try and bring this. Excellent. Yes. And well, I think it's the nature of life, isn't it? You know, it's very rare that anyone solves the problem of life in one go. It's a, it's, you know, it's a marathon experience, isn't it? Not a sprint and you gradually acquire some kind of command and control over, over these, these, these negative priors. And, and also, uh, you know, I presume, and I hope that you, know, you begin to develop relationships or reform relationships that are you know, going to be healthier and less, uh, less destructive based on those insights. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, um, would I do it again? Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, I, I know people who really are on the path of, of self, learning and then do it time and again and again and but one step at a time but i'd definitely do it again and you know as, as you said part of what you just said it's i i have i feel that it would be hugely beneficial to continue and what would you say to other people presumably you're going to meet people who will ask you should they do it how do you how do you deal with that i would say that it is 
it's something one has to be really ready for and has to really be open to. You, you have to go in there with an open mind and an open heart. There's no other way of, of saying this and because otherwise it just won't work, I think. And, but if you do, if you have decided on, on, on this is the right path for you, I think it is an extraordinary, extraordinary way forward that would, in my view, allow you to leapfrog, you know, decades of psychotherapy. And if it is integrated with possibly psychotherapy or uh, mindfulness or everything, you could, and you know, and I'm saying this obviously not with, with, a, with deep scientific or medical knowledge, just from what I've been able to engage and learn in speaking to some you know, learned, extraordinary individuals like yourself and Gabor and, and then reading and also experiencing myself. It's, it's a very, very powerful tool. Well, Evgeny, your story is very compelling. And I want to say again, I really thank you for, you know, your courage in, in sharing it with us. I, I think it, it's going to give a lot of people a lot of time for thought. And, uh, and then let's hope it can help uh, break some of the uh, fear and the hostility and the negativity that a lot of people still have to the idea that psychedelics can be healing. I'd love to stay in touch with you. I think if you know, things change over time and you get new insights, do, do get back in touch. We can always have part C of the podcast, but in, in the near future, we're going to publish or print, send out the A and B, and uh, I will let you know when that happens. And thanks again for sharing with us. Thank you very much for having me on. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And, um, you know, I do hope, as you say, it will shed some light on, on this field and, and these experiences for listeners because they've been truly, I'd say truly life-changing for me. So it's been, uh, I've been, I was very, been very, I was very happy to talk to you about this. Thank you for having me back. 